Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Weedy. Today is Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. For those of you who might be new to this format, every other episode is one where we take live questions from the audience. So you can always pre-submit them if you're not a, a live attendee. You can always pre-submit them by emailing us at webinar at evoketherapy.com. Any suggestions, requests, you can request copies of the slides. If it's for one of the, the slide presentations that I do, one of the topic presentations that I do, you can always communicate to us through that email address. I'll take the pre-submitted questions first, and then I'll get into the live questions from the audience this evening. Before I get to all that, I have to do my advertisement. I have to pay the bills. Myself uh, and my wife are going to be running a couple's workshop. We have a spot left. It might be filled up any day now. There's a couple of people that are kind of considering it. So if you want to do your own work, and I talk about that at length, of course, it's probably the drum that I beat the most. If you want to do your own work and you would like to do it in front of or with your partner, this is your once a year opportunity to do it. So Michelle and I are going to facilitate it. It is like a finding you. We, we ask you the, to do your own history, to depict your own history, to tell your own story. And then from that, we understand what might be the barriers or the blocks to greater intimacy or great, greater co-parenting cohesion. Cohesion. I always say, you've heard me say this many times, that having a, a, a happy marriage is learning to fall in love with your partner's dilemma over and over again. And what I mean by that is you have to understand their particular history, their, their brand of, uh, of family crazy. And by doing that, then you become less reactive. You become more compassionate. I wrote a quote today that says, it's not that the analysis, the, the, the comprehensive understanding in psychotherapy moves the needle in terms of our healing. It can, it can help. It can assist some. But really what understanding does is it, it begets compassion and non-judgment. When we understand somebody, when we understand ourselves, when we understand our partner, we have greater compassion. So this is not for high conflict couples. This is for couples who want to improve on their intimacy, who want to improve on their co-parenting. And uh, yeah, it's a rare opportunity. So I, I love doing this one. It's one of my favorites all year. Looking forward to working with my wife again. February 7th through 11th is that offering. Like I said, it's just about full and will probably fill up in the next few days. So if you're considering it, uh, email us at intensives at evoketherapy.com or go to our website. We also have, of course, are finding you opportunities both in person. The next offering is February 21st. The January offering is closed full for now. And then January 26th through 28th is an online offering. I think we might have one spot left in that one. So if you're interested in doing something online, if, if time and, and finances are, are uh, valuable resources right now, uh, especially after the holidays, the online option is half the time over a weekend and about a third of the cost. Um, something that we started during the pandemic and I was skeptical of it myself, but once we did it, I thought it was a, a powerful experience and did a lot that the in-person ones do. All right, let's get to the pre-submitted questions first. The first one reads, I've been thinking a lot over the holidays about friendship and about how my son, who is in treatment, let the, felt the effects of growing up having close friends leave due to external circumstances such as moving away. The lack of permanence is a one small piece of his attachment issues. At the same time, I was struck by how you dedicated the journey of the heroic parent to your, quote, best friend, Steve. And I'm interested in your thoughts about long-term friendships and what it means 
to have a best friend who is not one's spouse or partner? What makes someone a best friend rather than just a friend? What makes what made her mistakes makes this the case for you? Has your friendship with Steve changed and how did you adapt to that? What an interesting question. I don't think I've ever had one about this. I, I think for me and Steve, for, for I'm just going to be speaking from my own personal perspective. I don't think I have some unique perspective on friendships. I'll talk about psychology in general. But for me, it is being able to tolerate each other's dilemmas, being able to tolerate that the other person comes with, um, with baggage, being able to constantly have compassion. For me, probably the most important thing was that I could be myself and still be loved by him. In fact, when I first dedicated the book, the language wasn't the same and I showed it to Steve and he asked that I changed it. And I said something in the original language like, I know being my best friend for all these years has been at times a, a real trial for you because of the struggles that I've had, the difficulties that I've had. And he, I think he called me when he saw that and he said, I don't want you to write that. It hasn't been hard for me. It's been easy to love you all this time. So for me, it's about length of time. It's about what we've been through together. It's about I personally love and friendships. This is just me that there's there's no obligations in terms of, you know, we can go a long time without talking Steve and I and then we get in a car or do something together. And it's like there's been no time that has passed. We can sit together in silence. We don't need to fill the air because of anxiety. There's a comfort with it. So I don't know if, again, like I have some unique perspective, but I, I will say that what I found out about marriage was when our marriage was struggling back in 2000, 2010, excuse me, 2010, 2011, this is about 11, 12 years into our marriage, when our marriage was struggling and I, and I felt myself falling out of love, it wasn't because my wife had changed, but rather because I didn't think that I could, I didn't feel like that I could be myself and be loved. So I had to hide, I had to hold part of myself back constantly. I was evolving, I was changing, I was changing spiritually, religiously, I was changing culturally, I was changing in, in terms of my career. There were so many things that I was doing that were, that were evolving and I felt like those threatened our marriage and our connection and, and my wife would get upset or anxious about that. So I held that part, part back and when you do that, you, you fall out of love and I think that's a real mystery for a lot of people. When I and she both did our work concurrently, and we did a lot of work during our separation, I decided that I was going to be myself. That's what was, was the main takeaway that I got from my first therapeutic intensive as a participant, that I was going to be myself and, and let the chips, as it were, fall where they, they might. And as I started to be myself and started to tell the truth about what I felt and thought and wanted to do and not wanted to do, and my wife showed... Uh, um, love toward that, acceptance toward that, non-judgment toward that, support toward that. The, the, the falling back in love was powerful and profound and much better than it ever had been. And so even though I'm talking about a partnership, this, this best friend of mine is this place where I experienced the same kind of thing, where I could be myself, I could be my horrible, rotten self and still be loved and accepted and, and vice versa. I can hold the same kind of space for my best friend. You know, to this day, I would say that one of the things that's happened since the journey of the rogue parent is that my marriage with my wife has evolved and become more intimate. 
has become closer. We both continue to grow and to mature in this process. And I'm not drawing a distinction between my wife and Steve or my wife and any of any friend. My, my, my brother Rob is also somebody who I consider my best friend. I have more than one of those um, because he's easy to be with. I can be myself. I can let down my hair and, and not hold back from who I am. That's my perspective on it. Again, I don't have a unique perspective, but that's, that's where that comes from. In terms of your son's process, I can say this. You know, we, we, we think about looking for the big cause of the problems, right? We look for the big T's. We go out there fishing, as it were, to try to find what's the trauma that, that caused the problems for my child. I remember many years ago, this is 20 years ago, sitting in a parent workshop, a graduation parent workshop, and a grandfather, excuse me, a grandmother was sitting telling the story of her grandson that she was now the custodial parent of. And she described that his father had left him when he was an infant or maybe even prior to birth. His mother had died in her sleep some years later when he was in elementary school. He went and lived with his grandparents and his grandfather died. He got hit by a car at one point. He had to have a, a lot of surgery and he had to have rods put in his legs and they had all kinds of trauma. And she finished the story and she said, so this is why my son or my grandson is here at the program. And I, I gently paused and I said, that's not why he's here. That's what happened to him. But the reason is that he's here is because of the way that he's coping, the way that he's self-medicating. And so I think that sometimes we want to find the, the one cause of the solution. And there are people that have more difficult lives who aren't medicating and self-sabotaging as much. There are people that have, from, from an objective outsider's perspective, maybe less trauma that are self-medicating more. And there's no reason to judge one over the other. It's how you're coping. So yes, he may have had friends move on, but part of this process is learning, learning to continue to evolve. And that comes, the core strength in all of this is the quality of the attachment we have with our parents. We, we internalize this sense of safety, this sense that we are okay. My favorite quote to illustrate what a secure attachment feels like is in this quote that says, the bird who sits on the end of a branch isn't confident because it trusts the branch. In other words, it's not confident because it knows that nothing bad is going to happen to it. It's confident because of its wings. I was just talking to my therapist recently about some stress that I was going through, and, and I've been seeing her for 25, 26 years now. And she said very gently, she said, one thing I know about you is that you'll find a way to thrive in this situation. You'll find a way if it doesn't go the way you want, you'll thrive. If it goes the way that you want, you'll thrive. You'll be okay. And having had that reflected back to me, for 25 years, I'm, I'm, I'm making some headway on developing what, what therapists call earned attachment, right? That ability to, to develop that sense of okayness and stability that you carry around inside of you, that sense that you are home, that home is inside of you, and that's the safe place. I'm making some headway with that, but still, still even this last week, I think it was, needing or, or enjoying the reassurance that my therapist gave me. So... Our job is to be the container. Our job, it's the best example that I can give is when your child is, is playing outside when they're a toddler and they trip and fall and they look back at you, they're looking back to see if they are okay or not. 
They look at the expression at your face, the, your, your posture. Do you look panicked? Do you look afraid? Do you look upset? And that becomes the determining factor about how they feel about themselves. And that's really something that happens throughout life. Children experience themselves through the parent. And when the parent is anxious, as many parents are, I know I am, when the parent is anxious, the child experiences that not as my mom or dad or parent is afraid or anxious. They experience it as something's wrong with me. Does that track? Does that make sense? It's like they are a toddler, only they're going through adolescence and making weird, stupid choices and experimenting with life. They're a toddler going through life and they look at the parent. So when the parent looks upset, when the parent looks scared, when the parent looks angry or frustrated or concerned or worried, that gets interpreted by the child, mostly on an unconscious level, as something's wrong with me, the child. Something's, something must be wrong with me. I have to somehow um, wipe that, that concern look off my mother or father's face. If I upset them too much for too long, they might leave me. And if they leave me, I can't survive. That's the kind of evolutionarily, evolutionary biology that's in us. If we exhaust our parents, frustrate them, upset them, they'll eventually leave us. And that's why so many stories of redemption are about somebody being forgiven. I just saw um, the movie Poor Things. I don't know if you've seen it with Emma Emma Stone. It's a it's a quite a remarkable movie, quite provocative in, in many ways. It's not for everybody for sure. But that experience of, of being accepted as you are was something that played out in that movie. I just saw Killers of the Flower Moon, the Martin Scorsese movie, just last night. And that same thing was being played out by the wife. She was willing to forgive her husband if he was willing to tell the truth, even when the truth included the most heinous acts on his part. And then, of course, I used Les Mis as an example. When Jean Valjean was forgiven by the bishop and given more silver and told to pay it forward, as it were. And, and so that, that experience of being accepted and being seen and being supported, the sense that you're okay, that's the, the, the building blocks of resiliency. Now, what scares us and what our programming does to us to, to block that process is we think, out of our anxiety and fear and our conditioning and what the culture teaches us, we think we're supposed to shape our children upright. We're supposed to raise them to be good kids. And the culture tells us if they don't end up as good kids, it's our fault. And if they do end up as good kids, it's our credit, right? That's what the culture teaches us. We over-identify with the child because we haven't done our own healing work. We haven't unraveled our own small t developmental trauma. So we, we have a hard time with this forgiveness and acceptance and containing because we think the real energy in parenting should be spent behaviorally modifying the child. And I will tell you, while we have to have boundaries, that's a part of being a person, being a self, being a human. We have to have boundaries. And those boundaries are at times going to look like consequences and limits with children. That is inevitable. It's not ideal to have none of those. That means you would have no sense of self, no sense of who you are. And the child would have nothing to, 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 to push against, nothing to feel against. My, my daughter, a uh, very talented therapist in her own right, says it's like the, the child needs the edge of the pool to feel that edge, to feel safe and supported. So we have to have those boundaries, but the real magic is in the attachment. 
The real magic is in the work that the parent does to heal their own trauma. Mostly their developmental trauma, meaning not the big T stuff that some people go through, but the small T stuff, like the way that you were listened to, the way that you were supported, the way that you were heard, what you were taught about fear and love. So those are all of my thoughts about friendships and, and I hope that helps. All right, I have a five-part question. Goes like this. Part one, I am a mom, wife, teacher who now understands that much of my anxiety and discomfort in the world comes from my codependency. Codependency is the symptom of an attachment wound, an attachment fracture. I spent the first half of my life trying to be good and trying to help everyone around me feel good. I am learning how to identify, tolerate, and move through the shame and guilt I frequently feel as I walk through life. I am finally extending to myself the compassion I so often extend to my family and my students. I am working with a therapist. I'm listening to the podcasts. I'm spending more time with people who respect this process and less time with those who do not. So far, it sounds wonderful. My oldest child is 10 years old. He was diagnosed with anxiety disorders after the COVID lockdown. Having struggled with separation from us during preschool, my husband and I sought support from teachers, a loving play therapist, and an occupational therapist. These early struggles led us to find a private elementary school that he loved. Always an intense, sensitive, and extremely smart child who was quick to respond with feelings or big actions. The lockdown and withdrawal from school led quickly led to daily occurrences of his nervous system going into fight or flight. He would fight us or throw things for an hour or more each day. He's on medication now that seems to help him. We work hard to help him identify feelings of distress at the earliest signs and then make room to process and recuperate. After disliking several therapists, we tried after the early pandemic days, he willingly visits his old play therapist on her farm each week. He now attends a school, a school farm, uh, excuse me, he now attends a school for academically gifted children that is working for him and he enjoys it and he enjoys attending. He loves social interactions, sports and novelty of all kinds. He also does much better when his daily, weekly schedule is known and predictable. Transitions of all kinds tend to be very hairy. He presents as prideful and overconfident in many areas. Competition of any kind in any area where he does not thrive is often very difficult for him. He can be very prickly, mean, and or defiant when something is bothering him. When he is feeling good, his joy is palpable, and his shine is really bright. My husband is, dedic is a dedicated partner and father. He and I have been married for almost 20 years. We have had a very solid friendship at the foundation of a loving marriage. I respect him greatly for the work he's done in therapy over the last 15 years. He used to have big outbursts of anger, especially around his parents. In therapy, he came to see that he was abused physically and emotionally as a child. He addressed the abuse with his parents and ultimately judged the relationship too difficult for him to continue in any substantial way. When our oldest child began to have big emotional responses, sometimes hitting us, beginning in toddlerhood, my husband struggled because of his trauma story. He worked with his therapist to deal with an upset child or adult, and he has been successful in this. But an intense physical contact, but the intense physical contact that began during the COVID lockdown was especially challenging. As a stopgap for our suffering family, I was 
designated by myself, my husband, and his therapist as the point person for all the responses from my child that became physical. My husband would remain in the room or just outside the room to try to offer me emotional support. It was a very difficult and exhausting time for all of us. Since the lockdown, I have recognized the many ways I have enabled my husband to take on a secondary role, especially with our oldest child, both before, during, and after the lockdown. I have viewed myself as uniquely capable of withstanding the extreme physical and verbal responses, holding space for big feelings, and compassionately holding my son accountable for his behaviors while loving him unconditionally. I know this is codependency, and I know the consequences for myself, my relationship with my husband, and for my children. I have recently been working with my therapist to let go of the responsibility taking and for the relationship between my husband and my son. Final part. Ultimately, I am learning that I trust my husband to be safe and that this is his this this is different from always liking what he says and and how he engages with our children. Without my interventions, my husband and oldest child are fairly regularly in conflict where I have had plenty of practice at the delicate dance of holding boundaries, but also accommodating my child's particularly particular anxiety triggers. My husband's dance is excruciating for me to watch. His theoretical understanding understandings are in line with mine, but our practices are not in line. Now I am stepping away from controlling my husband in these situations. My younger child and I have often, and I often have to live with the residual impacts of their conflicts. I feel stuck in the family dynamics. I deeply dislike. My husband is taking my feelings seriously. He wants to go to a couples therapy specifically to help with co-parenting. We regularly debrief how we could have handled the situation better, and he takes responsibility for his numerous missteps. Nonetheless, I feel myself losing hope that we can truly change the dynamic. I feel like I am starting to mourn the loss of a happy family. It's really hard for me to imagine any offering any insight given how articulate and how much work that you've done and how clear you are on, on, on what your project is. So I'm going to take a few risks um, in answering or responding to this, this one. Like I said at the outset when I was pitching the couples workshop that I'm running, uh, falling in love with your partner's dilemma is something you have to do over and over again. The thing that strikes me about the story that you tell is how human it is, right? There, there's a, um, there's progress. There, there's at times hope. There's improvement. There's courage. Um, there's love. There's patience in it. But there's also the human issue of fallibility that, that runs throughout it and that can become exhausting. I think my response to it is that's normal. And the loss of hope it might be signaling some other change that needs to happen. It might be. It might be that your husband needs to do some um, other kind of therapy to regulate his nervous system. And, you know, I'm not suggesting this by a very long shot. But, of course, if the, if the issue became too toxic, too much, too serious over a long period of time, you might have to make a change in the relationship. And you might have to take care of yourself by taking some time out, by, by, by stepping away. I'm not suggesting that. I, I want to be clear. But you can only do what you can do. Part of me hears that you need more support, more self-care. Part of me hears that your husband might need something more immersive 
and, and more dynamic in his work. It sounds like you guys do so much. I really don't have a lot to add except for my empathy, my respect, my admiration, my love for what you're going through because from what you're describing, you're doing all the things that you can do. I know this is self-serving and so I'm going to do what I do just to mitigate that self-serving aspect of it, but go to an intensive. And if you don't want to go to our, if you don't want to go to our finding you, if he doesn't want to go to finding you, go to one at onsite, go to one at the bridge to recovery, go to one at the house of Alcala or at the Meadows program in Arizona, go somewhere where you can do something more immersive and see if, see if some, some healing can move the, the, the ball down the field a little bit. But for the most part, you know, you, you, you're, you're both doing just about everything you can. And know that to be exhausted by it is not a character flaw. I think sometimes in my teaching and the work that I do, especially in this format where I'm, I'm doing all the talking, I think sometimes people think that the goal is to become better. And really the goal is to become who you are, who you were before the world got a hold of you and told you who you should be. And so the fact that you are exhausted, how could you not be? How could you not be um, at your wits ends, given all of the investment of time and money, sacrifice and heart that you put into this, and you're still seeing some of the same patterns. So I wish I had something more directive, more immediate, more practical for you, but I don't know that I do. I just don't. Thank you, and, and I'm sorry, and, and like I said, you have my love and admiration and respect. Sometimes these are the type of situations where the child needs an out-of-home treatment, an out-of-home placement. And the thing that really upsets people when I talk about that is someone says, well, why should the child have to go away from treatment when the real issue here is the parent? And my response is, but that's almost always the case. We have almost always some significant contribution to the, to the dynamics with the child and sending them away is not a punishment. It's that we can't give them what, what they need in this process. You know, even, even Alice Miller, who wrote the drama of The Gifted Child, my, my favorite book on, on attachment-based parenting, she said, and, and back in 1979 when she wrote it, it was about mothers. So she said, a mother that is not particularly warm-hearted can still give the child what the child needs if only the mother will allow the child to get it from somebody else, or in this case, the father, or the parents as, as an as a executive parenting unit. So sometimes, sometimes that's the result. And when I have kids who have come to our program who say to me, my parents should be here, my response is, I believe you. It doesn't work that way, but I believe that, that in terms of who's deserving of this kind of intervention, I believe that your parents need it every bit as much as you. It's extraordinarily rare that that's not the case. That would be the, by far the exception to the everyday rule. So if your child is still acting out in physical ways, and those are still triggering, triggering to a husband who's doing all the work and has all the positive attributes and characteristics that you've described in your question to me, that might be time for the child to go to a placement, to go to an attachment-based program, contacting an educational consultant 
and talking about this, calling our admissions folks and asking what they think about it can be a part of this process too. So I didn't want to move on without saying that because I think that a parent or, or a set of parents that are as awake and enlightened as you two seem to be, which I have all the faith in the world that you are, I think that, that they might stop themselves before considering an out-of-home placement for the child because of the guilt that they feel. But again, that's virtually why all parents place their children in programs is because the child is demonstrating behaviors that, that the parent is ill-equipped to deal with and, and that the parents are not capable of apparently, just by the design of what we're seeing, capable of giving the child what the child needs. It's not that far off from taking your, do- your, your, your child to a doctor or a dentist or a physical therapist. They have skills, they have tools, they have medicine that, that you don't have at your access. And so you're taking them to get help from somewhere else. So that is a really real possibility that, that at first when I read your question, I wasn't thinking of, but we should put on the table as a possibility. Somebody writes, our son, thank you for that. Our son returned home from an evoke, then a residential treatment center about three months ago. He was away for a total of 12 months and has recently begun to be heavily influenced by the extremist views on social media and is highly argumentative and confrontational with us as his parents. What ideas do you have for us as we let him explore the variety of perspectives and to not go down the rabbit hole of extremist views on social media? You are not the only person who's experiencing this. And although my story doesn't perfectly mirror yours, my two younger children, not dangerously extremists, but, but their views are pretty reactive. And, and I see that with a lot of young people today. They are very rigid, very reactive, very absolute in their perspectives. With that in mind, it's around the, the balance between the boundary that you hold with them about what you can listen to and what you're okay with and, and expanding your capacity, right? Those are the two things that are always happening in tandem is we're expanding our capacity. We're getting larger because of our awareness. Wow, the storm outside that they warned me about earlier in the broadcast, I can hear outside. It is loud, significant. So we're expanding our capacity, expanding our capacity as we get larger, and we're still maintaining our, our sense of self as manifested by our boundaries. So you don't have to agree or disagree, but you can draw lines. You can have boundaries about what you can and can't hear. I was thinking about the last question and thinking about, I think so many kids came out of the pandemic with increased anxiety and trauma around the pandemic. And I think part of it was because the way that we were acting as parents. In other words, anxiety and trauma is contagious, right? We, we, we leak it on to our children and to other people. And I think that that's a part of this dynamic. So you don't have to take it. You don't have to tolerate everything. You don't have to listen to everything. So it would then become within the, the, the context of virtually every other behavior, right? We would do the same thing. We would try to understand it. We would try to listen. But ultimately, and I can't emphasize this enough, part of having a self is being able to draw a boundary. And remember, mom and dad, or human, remember this. There are many, most difficult situations. Follow this formula. 
And the formula is you can't win. You get to choose how to lose. And again, I, I think that sometimes in this format, there's this idea or maybe even this hope that there's some way to win, some decision to make where everybody is happy and everybody get what, gets what they want. A lot of times in, in individual psychotherapy, I find that experience that the client thinks that you have some hack, some way around. And the fact of the matter is that most human experiences um, are less than ideal, less than optimal. And, and we have to accept to, to detach ourselves from the idea and from the hope that we can get everything perfectly sorted out the way that we want it to. So it's a very, very, very good question. Um, and I think those are the principles that come to mind when I think about it. So thank you for sending it in. Somebody writes, do you have any other suggestions for me to consider when people in a relationship with innate power differences, parent, minor, for example, have conflicting needs and unagreed upon expectations of each other? My 14-year-old expresses, expresses that I am not listening to her unless I change what I am doing. There's a lot of energy around me not meeting her needs, even when her demands are not, are, are not about the things I have agreed to. She hates when I reflectively listen. She doesn't like it if I say nothing, and she is unable to tolerate if I say okay. She is annoyed when I ask her to write it, or if I ask her if we can address it when I give her my full attention, when I have, when I have a babysitter. At times, she gets stuck and appears to want to ensure that the entire family is as unhappy about this as she is. The outcome has resulted in her monopolizing shared spaces within our home. It can prevent her three siblings and myself from comfortably accessing the kitchen and living room, making daily activities challenging. During coaching therapy support groups, it is often suggested that I expand my support system. The dynamic between her and I isolate us because we are either mad she uh, we are the mad at me for allowing her to act this way or upset with her for for treating me this way in the distance and they distance themselves i think i'm missing something in there i i bought everyone your books and have sent an inappropriate amount abundance of your podcast to them to provide a, an, an unfamiliar perspective to them to consider we attended finding family i attended finding you your parent workshop. We both continued to use Evoke coaches. She did well at Evoke's Wilderness program and was recommended that she return home afterwards. That was not sustainable. And unfortunately, she is able to stay with a family friend currently. She wants to return home and resist family therapy and continues to struggle with being with, being with us for a few more hours. Some of the backstory. One sibling and I have ADHD. Uh, the, this daughter does not. And I think that this is partially why, what drives her crazy. I am working diligently on other options from my codependent behavior patterns and these people pleasing sacrifice my uh, to pleasing pe people sacrifice my own needs compounded with impulsivity and time blindness give me plenty of time to, uh, plenty of work to keep busy my husband of 20 years and a friend since childhood died from suicide in 2020 after difficulty getting treatment for PTSD resulting from deployments among other things at the time she was 11, her siblings were eight, four, and nine months. Now I have a, a, uh, a three-nager, a 12 and 14-year-old, and I am 41. We are all doing, we are all doing the, the fighting for our identity thing. My poor son, soon to be eight, could probably use a vacation from all of us. 
again, these are really high level questions from people who are doing a lot of their work and you have my respect. You know, some of the same principles, some of the same things I said to that previous question um, would apply to you. And, and what sounds like, and, and, and I don't know this, of course I don't know this, but what it sounds like in your description, your backstory, is that your daughter's working with some borderline defenses, not borderline personality disorder, but some borderline defenses. And the name of the game in borderline defenses is um, you lose. That's the end of the game. That's the beginning and the end of the game. You lose. And so when you're shifting to more healthy behaviors, yes, you can become less mechanical in your listening. That might improve it. But the fact of the matter is she also wants to punish you for not engaging in the old way. Right? We call this, in short-term circumstances, we call this an extinction burst. See, the work is for parents is to find peace, to find serenity, to, fly, to find clarity and confidence. That's the work. From that place, the decisions, the tools that we employ, the things that we do, do from, from there, that all just becomes an outgrowth of, of the foundational work of, of peace of mind. So if you're working with a, a child with a borderline defense, you're going to lose. You cannot win. That's where that saying actually comes from from working with borderline clients, adult borderline clients. You can't win, you can only choose how to lose. But the fact of the matter is anytime, this is important, I've said this before, anytime anybody in any system gets healthier, one can expect for the system to resist that. So when you start employing skills and your child resists, that's par for the course, right? There's an old, I remember 25 years ago, there used to be this uh, on one of the, the office staff on their wall right above their, their desks at, at our office. And it said, arguing with a teenager is like getting in the mud with a pig. The, the thing is that the pig enjoys it. And so children want, spouses, people want to get you into a debate because that's where they win versus the kind of boundary setting that we do from a, from a healed place, from a, recovered, from, a, from a recovering codependency place is Noah is a complete sentence. And I'm not doing this to try to manipulate or change you. I'm doing this to try to, to try to carve a path out for myself to find the greatest peace and clarity and confidence that I can find. So for you especially, the work comes back to you and you're on your own. You're without a partner. That's significant. Yes, getting more support, going to 12-step. Think of yourself as having a chronic drug-abusing child. You know, there are people that go to Al-Anon whose family members and loved ones have passed on, right? People go to Al-Anon because of their alcoholic parents who have passed on. People go who have lost a spouse or a brother or a sister or, or a child. And they continue to go because the disease goes with them wherever they are. So you identify with somebody as codependency, as do I. So that's what the support is for is I think about this in psychotherapy all the time when I'm talking to clients, it's energy in and energy out. I, I, I shared a quote the other day from Charles Eisenstein, the philosopher. He's quoting a, a Chinese Buddhist saying that says the Bodhisattva, this is somebody who's nearing enlightenment, capable of enlightenment. The Bodhisattva 
tries to avoid the causes. And an ordinary person tries to avoid the results or the outcomes. So your work is going to be incredibly challenging, already is. I, I, I tell you what else I like about your question, your backstory. I like that she's with somebody else. I know that's heartbreaking. I know that's heartbreaking, especially for a family that, that has had loss. But again, if, if we can allow our children at times to get from other people what we ourselves can't give, even if it's a relative or a friend, right, a program, a therapist, a coach, a teacher, if we can allow them to get something and we can remove our own ego out of it and go through our own letting go and our own grief process, we are still parenting the child. Even the, 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 the person who is credited with founding attachment theory, Bowlby. Even Bowlby was a fan of boarding school for middle school age children and, and, and high school age children. He said sometimes it gives the family the necessary space. And again, I know in American culture, we think of that as, as heresy. We, 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 and, and when I talk to people, people constantly uh, attribute attachment to proximity, right? If I am physically close to you, I can have an attachment. If I'm physically far away from you, I can't have an attachment. That's not attachment. That's proximity. Attachment is, can I see you? And can I give you what you need to, to go farther on your journey? And if I can't give it to you, can I find it from somebody else? I know it was limited in time, but when I sent my oldest to, to wilderness therapy and my third born for a shorter wilderness therapy a few years ago, it was the same mentality. I needed help. I needed support. I needed the same kind of support and help that you all need. I had the same kind of triggers that you all have. I had enough confidence to realize that somebody else could do something for my child that I might not be able to do. They have the, the advantage of objectivity. They're less triggered. Their, their buttons aren't as accessible when they're working with my child. Just like your children and their buttons, they're pushing up buttons. They don't have access to my buttons as much as my children do. That's part of my advantage over you and working with your children. It's not all of it. But a good part of my advantage over any of you and working with your children is they're not my children. And you would have the exact same advantage if you were mentoring or helping my child in so many ways. If you had the basic skill sets that we discuss on these broadcasts. So I also want to give you credit. As difficult and challenging as it might be, I want to give you credit for the decision to allow her to be with somebody else. I think that that is a heroic choice. And in some cases, the wisest choice. It goes back to that earlier comment about treatment being an option for a child if the parents are, are, are not capable of giving the child what they want. You know, part of what I've talked about, I'm going to shift to, to use this as an analogy. Part of what I've used, when people come to me, they say, when, when is it okay to divorce? And of course, I can't answer that question. That's not mine to answer. That's nobody else's to answer. You get to decide. That's the whole... That's the whole game is you get to decide. But what I can say is if somebody is, is triggering me, I'll just speak in the first person to make the illustration more clear. 
If somebody is triggering me in such a way that I am being cruel to them, if I can't be kind to them and loving to them, then I might need to distance myself because I don't want to be that person. It goes back to one of my favorite ideas about boundaries. I shared in the, in the, the audacity to be you that a, a healthy boundary is the distance between me and you at which I can love you and me simultaneously. And sometimes we show up to conversations, relationships, because we should, because we feel guilty, because we feel obligated unconsciously or consciously to show up, and we abuse each other. And in that, nobody's getting fed. Nobody's getting helped. The only thing that's getting helped in that equation are the egos of the, are the, egos of the people deciding to show up because they're trying to be good. So again, you might very well have an unsolvable problem. And like the other person and people that are submitting questions tonight, your work is profoundly respect. I respect it profoundly. You are doing what needs to be done. And, and even showing up and asking questions or sending in questions is a part of that. So keep that up. Find other sources of support. Find other sources that feed you because your children are not going to. And you're going to be, you are going to be fighting this fight in raising your children, I don't mean the argument, the conflict, I just mean the task. You are going to be completing this task with one hand tied behind your back, period, because of what's happened to your children with their father and to your family. So you've got to think outside of the box and you have my non-judgment about whatever you decide to do. And as I've said many times as of late, Something I learned from my therapist many, many years ago, two decades ago in therapy. And, and now I know it in my, my body. I have the lived experience that some of my best parenting would not be approved of by the dominant culture, by most people around me. A lot of ways that I talk to my children, my boundaries that I set with my children, how they allow them to talk to me, there are a lot of people who wouldn't approve of it. But I have got to forge my own way. And then if that involves treatment or living with a friend's house, like in your case, then all the more respect and admiration for the courage and the heroic journey to look inside and do the difficult thing. So thank you. Very, very difficult. Somebody wrote in, and I see her on the broadcast this evening. She said, hi, I have a friend who recently became a step-parent to a six-year-old girl. She reports noticing problematic dynamics between the child and each of the parents, but she is aware of her outsider status. Nice. I referred her to your talk on co-parenting and step-parenting. Can you recommend any additional tool, tools or other resources for step-parents? Or excuse me, books. Can you recommend any books or resources for step-parents? Thanks, and thank you for your continued broadcasts. Um, well, I actually saw this come in earlier, and I did a research, and I thought, I just did a, a Google search of step parenting books, books for step parenting, just to see if there have been any that I've heard talked about. And I looked through a few lists and didn't recognize any of the titles. What that caused me to conclude was that I've never recommended a, a book about step parents for step parents, which is kind of shocking to hear, isn't it? Given the, the amount of clients I've worked with over the course of three decades as being a therapist. So I thought to myself, why did why has that never come up? And I think it's because, like all issues, I think there's something more fundamental at play here than the, the, the narrow role of step-parenting. So what I would say to you, to say to her, is 
Same thing I say all the time. Um, you know, do your own work, of course. Understand that, that whatever the task or the relationship is in front of you is built upon the, upon the foundation of the relationship you have with your authentic self or the lack of it. And so a place to go for that would be Codependence Anonymous because when you're in that outsider position of a step-parent and there's a lot of stuff that goes into it, and of course my broadcast talks about this, you know, you're going to be at some advantage, of course, because you'll have an objective perspective, but you're at a disadvantage because you're not, you're not involved in the emotional drama of it all. And so there's, there can be an ability to lose empathy. You might try to control things. You might become very judgmental. There's a whole bunch that you have to hold on to as a step parent. There's a whole bunch you have to hold on to. There's a whole bunch that it is appropriate to stand to the side, to take care of yourself, but to stand to the side and let the folks that are dealing with it deal with it. And, and you know, the, the, the partner that you've partnered up with, right? The, the, if you've partnered with a parent who has a child, that thus you become the step, stepchild, or excuse me, the stepparent, you have a stepchild, the work is how can I support them? And, and you know, I watch my, my wife, my wife is the stepparent of our two older children. And um, I will tell you this to this day, there are things that make her job as a stepparent much easier. And both of our older children lived with us for a good portion of their lives. Um, there are things that um, she does very, very well. And there's things that she struggles with. And then you bring that to the two children that we have together, our 21 and our 20, our 16 year old. And it's all a different equation. There are different challenges, but, but when we talk about it, it's all in the context of my wife's trauma, right? My wife's codependency, my wife's anxiety, right? My relationship, like I say all the time with my children has the same issues. My codependency, my abandonment from my parents, which was really my childhood wound my unhealed trauma, my maturity, my growth. And so Codependence Anonymous strikes me. I, I, my fear about a specific step-parenting book is that it would, I think it could be great. I think step-parenting books could be great for people. If, if that helps them, fantastic. But it's not about that. You know, that's the American idea is see a problem, fix the problem. And it's, it's about us. It's about the relationship we have with ourselves. It's about our own histories and our own healing. And the circumstances in our life are just the way that they play out. And if you have a child with a mental health issue or a, a spouse with a mental health issue, which by the way, every married person has a spouse with a mental health issue. Every parent, excuse me, every spouse as a spouse with a mental health issue. So how they trigger you, how you respond to them, where you draw lines, when the lines need to be more significant, all of that becomes your, your work. So you've done a great job of supporting them. I don't have any, this is, this is a long-winded way to say, I don't have any answers for some specific step parenting books, but I tend to not recommend those. There are a handful of principles that I've found in my career, and that's a, been, been a, an area where I've worked with a lot of people but most of it is the same kind of work that, that we're doing no matter what the dilemma is. And that is working on yourself, becoming a more whole, more, more healed 
version of yourself. All right, I think that's all for this evening. I think that's it. Um, great. My two books, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You, are available on Amazon and Audible. Like I said, the, the Finding You coming up January is full. February 21st is the next offering. That will be run by my daughter, Emma, who many of you know. That one will fill up in advance also. And then March 20th after that online, we have a spot left, I believe, as of noon today. We have a spot left in the online January 26th, Finding You. And then, of course, we have custom Finding Connection, Finding Family for Families. Um, contact intensives at evoketherapy.com if you have more questions or you're interested. We have support groups. These are free support groups for our current and alumni uh, clients. So if you are a wilderness current or alumni, the next offering is January 11th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Once a month, we have an alumni only meeting. January 15th is that offering, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And then once a month for intensives and coaching clients, we have a support group. January 9th, that's tonight, in five minutes, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. So if you if you're planning on attending that, you can jump off now. Support groups at evoketherapy.com is where to reach out if you have more questions or you want to sign up. We have virtual coaches. We started this during the pandemic also and it has become our fastest growing offering. So we have dozens of coaches with a variety of backgrounds, all, all in, that, that are also educated in the attachment-based model that I talk about on these broadcasts. This is for parents, couples, families, or individuals. If you have a child returning home, they can work with you and or your child. You can, you can do it while your child is away in treatment. You can do it if you've never had a child at all and if you've never been in treatment at all. They can work with a variety of issues, codependency, trauma, recovery, parenting, couples issues, and so forth. We ask all current parents to just try six of any of the following 12-step support groups. Alanon.org, Coda.org, FamiliesAnonymous.org, or AdultChildren.org. RefugeRecovery.org is also a nice resource, and the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI.org, has free classes and resources in your area. I haven't said this in a long time, but if you are a current or alumni family and you've not tried your six meetings, any combination, part of the reason I want you to go is because it's a tool that many people swear by. And many people, because of these recommendations that I've made, have attended reluctantly and found it to be one of the greatest gifts in their life. That's part of it. But part of it is, if nothing else, going to a support group and walking in and... and sharing a bit of yourself gives you some empathy for what you're asking your child to do. And as was, was well stated in the book Addictive Thinking by Abraham uh, Tversky, the rabbi, the wonderful thing that he, he noted was parents and, and, and family members of the identified patient have the exact same excuse for not going to treatment that the identified patient has. It doesn't apply to me. These people are the same. I can do it myself. I don't really have a problem all the same excuses. And I'm not recommending any of this therapy stuff except for the fact that I think it will enhance and deepen your life. Your psychological, spiritual, and emotional life will become richer and actually easier as a result of all these things that I recommend. It might feel like work and uncomfortable and scary at first, but the long-term gain is fantastic. All these broadcasts are available on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast wherever you consume podcasts. You can also go to soundcloud.com on your computer and find us there. Also, all of the rebroadcasts of these video versions are posted the next day on Evoke's YouTube channel. 
You can find Evoke Therapy programs and me, Dr. Brad Reedy, on X, Threads, and Instagram using the handles at Evoke Therapy and at Dr. Brad Reedy, respectively. You can find Evoke, Tensives on, in, Evoke Intensives on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives on Facebook. You can find us by searching Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And of course, our blog has wonderful content each week. All right, folks, I'm going to be talking about goals and resolutions. Goals and resolutions, uh, 48 hours from now, January 11th, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Look forward to that. I definitely will have a different spin on goals and resolutions than what you have heard in other places. I have a lot of confidence in that. As always, thanks for joining me. I I hope this is a helpful point of contact. And for and on behalf of the people that you love and the people that love you, thank you for showing up and being being willing to do your work, to take the heroic journey, to look at yourself and your contribution to, to dynamics. It makes the biggest difference in the world. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you in about 48 hours. Take care. Bye-bye. Man.